You're now listening to a new episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. Gratitude instills humility. Gratitude removes ego. Gratitude helps empower the best in others around you. Our goal is to guide individuals and companies to practice gratitude so you can live a longer, happier, and more successful life. Get ahead of life with connection and purpose. This is Gratitude Through Hard Times with Chris Shembra. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. It's your host, Chris Shembra, and I'm so excited that you are joining us today for a very special episode. Today's episode was actually recorded in our home right here in New York City, with a dear friend and an amazing leader. If you are a loyal listener of this podcast, I welcome you back. Some of my favorite moments throughout the week are when you email in your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns of today's episode guest. I thank you for your loyal listenership. If you are new here to this podcast today, I thank you for showing up. I don't know how you stumbled upon us, but you've made it to a wonderful conversation series where we bring on some of the world's great leaders to share their stories of how they've built or lead amazing companies with a heart of gratitude, empathy, authentic recognition, human connection, and belonging. I invite you to go back through the podcast episode archives and listen to a whole host of wonderful leaders on how they got their start and how they are leading great companies through these amazing principles. Uh, Today, we're honored to have uh, a dear friend on the call, Lisa Besserman. Lisa uh, formerly was the founder of Startup Buenos Aires uh, until she sold that company actually to the government. She's been named as Business Insider's Top 100 most influential women in tech, sharing that honor with notable, amazing women such as Sheryl Sandberg, Ariana Huffington, Marissa Meyer, and so much more. Currently, she's the head of innovation at J.P. Morgan Chase Operations, where she works with startups and emerging tech to solve problems at scale for the world's largest financial institution. Uh, She has had a wonderful, wonderful uh, resume in tech. She is uh, a a mountaineer. She is a hiker. She enjoys playing the guitar and advising startups. Her work has been talked about uh, on NBC, Bloomberg TV, Entrepreneur Magazine, Forbes, CNN. She's lectured at the top institutions in the world, but most importantly, she's a dear friend who shares a personal connection both of us having been on a similar trip to Israel um, through the Reality Schusterman organization. Um, In this conversation, she actually joins us in our home to talk about her most recent trip, summiting or, or, or reaching the Everest Base Camp. In this conversation, we're talking innovation, creativity, human connection, climbing that next I'll be happy when monument and so much more. So without further ado, I welcome Lisa Bestman to the podcast. What are three sentences you felt when you got back to America from Everest? I feel accomplished. 
And what's next? You felt accomplished. Yeah. How so? Everest, you know, like I, so I recently got into mountaineering. I've been a hiker for, for probably a little over a decade now, but mountaineering is a different class of hiking. So I think I should just take a step back to explain the difference. Um, I say like facetiously, like mountaineering is, it's like hiking, but with a higher chance of death. Um, but also with a lot more gear. So you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with a little more technicality. So there's crampons, there's harnesses, um, you know, there's sleeping on the mountain, there's different conditions when it comes to like a hike, a day hike, uh, an overnight hike versus like mountaineering, like summiting a mountain. Um, and Everest, I didn't summit Everest, I did base camp, but it's, it's always been kind of in the back of my mind. I spent some time in Nepal, um, after I lived in Japan and um, I really wanted to do Everest Base Camp at that time, but it was monsoon season, so I couldn't, unfortunately. And so it's just kind of always been in the back of my mind as like the quintessential or like the, you know, the the greatest kind of mountaineering expedition um, beyond the summit, obviously, which I didn't have an interest of do- in doing. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I felt accomplished because it was something that's been a dream of mine for over a decade and um, I trained extensively for it for months and months and months. Um, and so being able to, you know, not only successfully get to that point um, and, and reach base camp, but also like check that, you know, that, that experience off my bucket list just felt really, really fulfilling and uh, accomplishing. And, you know, the thing about mountains, I, I read this, this article in Psychology Today and they said, you know, hiking is one of the best hobbies a person can have, not just for the physiological benefits, but psychologically. Because whenever you have a hobby, like think of a hobby, like um, playing an instrument or learning sewing. language, sewing, there's no end point. Like there's no success metrics. Like I know how to sew now. Like, no, you could always get better at sewing or I know how to play an instrument. Well, you could always Im- improve or I can speak a language. Well, there's always more to learn and, and, and more to improve. And so success is a moving goalpost for a lot of hobbies. And you never feel like you've accomplished that one goal because success just keeps on moving. Whereas with mountaineering and hiking, it's it's a very clear end point. And it's a very clear, like, did I succeed? Did I accomplish my goal or did I not? And do I have to try again? And so, you know, just like the psychology behind mountaineering and hiking, I think is really interesting because you get to accomplish that goal and it's tangible and it's immediate. Well, depending on how long, you know, Everest was a couple of weeks, but, um, you know, depending on how long it is, it's, it's something that you know you've accomplished and uh, you can feel fulfilled at that point because you're able to do it versus just you learn to scale and there's always something better you can you can get. Success is a moving goalpost for most of our hobbies. But climbing Everest or reaching Everest's base camp is a finite goalpost. Is is there any other places in life that are actually finite like that in that similar type of way or are other places in life moving goalposts as well? Uh, you know, I guess my initial, like my immediate thought was, oh, marriage, that's, that's a finite goal. Like that's a finite end point. But the truth is it's not, you know, it, you have to work at it. it just not, it's not like you just, I'm, I'm married, I found my person and I can rest on my laurels or, you know, like love takes work and it's a moving goalpost. There's going to be changes in, in, in who you are and who that your partner is, um, 
So I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think everything can be considered a moving goalpost. Like at least if you take an approach with like a growth mindset that like we are evolving creatures and we should be evolving, uh, whether that's with, you know, our passions, our hobbies, our partners, uh, our careers, et cetera. So I think, you know, mountaineering and hiking is one of the few things where you can say, hey, I did it. But at the same time, like mountaineering is also a moving goalpost because, you know, like, as I mentioned, one of the things I thought when I first got home was what's next, you know, like, all right, I did that. Now, now what's next? So it's like, you can't climb all the mountains in the world. How many times do we reach some type of success to then be in the success, be in the winning moment and say, no, this wasn't it. What do I do next? I'll be happy when I get married. No, you're not. I'll be happy when I buy that faster car. I'll be happy when I buy that bigger house. I'll be happy when I add that extra zero to my bank account. No, you won't. It's a success is a moving goalpost. Yeah. So my question to you is what parts of being up on that mountain did you do in order to not achieve? Let, let me back up a step and frame this. The Greek word telos. Um, means to have a fixed end, a destination, a goal, an end point. And so a lot of us have built lives with a lot of telic-based activities, activities that have an end point, a goal, a finite destination. The opposite of telic-based activities are atelic activities, activities you do just for the sake of doing them with no end or destination in sight. These could be just simply going for a walk in nature with no end goal. Mm -hmm. This could just be sitting down and doing a hobby with no end goal. My question is, as you were in a very telic based destination activity, reach base camp. Did you do anything along the way that was an atelic based activity to give you a piece of calm or mindset shift in the middle of this daunting goal? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that kept me sane, you know, cause like if you think about how much space you cover or how, you know, the incline that you're walking or like the treacherous nights, because the nights are the worst part of the whole thing. You know, if you're always thinking about like how long it's going to take to get to the next place, the next place, the next place, I think you drive yourself crazy. Um, and like the thing I did to keep myself grounded was just, and this is very difficult for me because I'm someone who always looks to the future. I'm unfortunately fallen to the box of I'll be happy when some, you know, more mm-hmm. than I would like. Um, but I think the thing that kept me grounded because I was trying to be very present, um, which isn't easy for for me or, or people like me, but um, was just enjoying the beauty, like the beauty of the Himalayas and the scenery that I was seeing every single day. I have never in my life with my own two eyes, like ever seen something so spectacular. And so regardless of how strenuous the, the, the hike was that day or how many miles we had to cover, or, you know, how difficult the terrain was, it was really just like stopping and like looking around. It's kind of like stop to smell the roses, but like stop to look at the mountains and like just marvel in the natural beauty that was in front of me that I know um, not many people get the opportunity to see. And so I think just kind of appreciating and living in the present, which does not come naturally for me at all, um, was, was probably the, the best part uh, and not thinking about the goal. That being said, and like, I'm, uh, I'm a little ashamed to admit this. It's funny. It's like, I was, I was like laughing about it on the, on the hike with, with, with my group, which was when I was at the gym training for the mountain, um, you know, I was going through intense training, you know, like five days a week with a trainer, 
you know, I was climbing up my, uh, my apartment building 15 stories with weighted vests and I was at the gym all the time. Like it was just a lot. Like my whole life was just training. It was just like work training. I didn't even see friends. I didn't date. I didn't, I didn't do much. Um, and while I was going through the strenuous training, I was visualizing being on the mountain. And like, that was the thing that was getting me through the training. I'm like, I'm getting to the base camp. And like, in my mind, I just saw the beauty of the Himalayas before I was there. And I was like imagining and, and visualizing it. And then while I was on the mountain, and I don't know, this is probably says something about my, my psychology or what, I don't, I don't know what this says about me, but while I'm on the mountain, all I was thinking about was being on my couch. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I just want to be mm-hmm. done with this. I just want to sit on my couch. I just want to eat ice cream and watch Netflix. Um, so it's just, it's just funny. Cause like the thing I was visualizing to get me to that place. And now I'm at that place and I had to like be very intentional about being there versus imagining, you know, being off the mountain and being somewhere else, you know? So it was just, that was like a muscle that I needed to flex. Um, no pun intended, but yeah. There's an interesting Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where, or I think maybe it's just a Jerry Seinfeld stand-up where he says, you know, it's, it's akin to going out at night out on the town. You get dressed, you're really excited to go out. You've been looking forward to it all week. You can't wait to go out. But the minute you're out, you can't wait to come back in. Mm-hmm. You can't wait to get back home. But this is on a grander scale. Did you have any FOMO? Oh, definitely just- not. No, I was so happy to be on that mountain. Uh, I was so ha- I mean, this also happened at a time in history. You know, this was less than a month after October 7th, which, oh, which affected, yes. you know, me and my family and uh, my community. Uh, and, and seeing how the world had changed and seeing all the vitriol online and seeing, you know, just all of the negativity on Instagram that I couldn't stop doom scrolling. So it was genuinely like a beautiful pause for me to like be able to step away from all of the chaos of the world and just unplug, like even Mm. work. Like I love what I do. I love my job. Um, but whenever I take vacations, I always check my email. Like I, Oh, I'm always available because like I enjoy what I do. And I also don't want to come back to like 300 emails. So I, um, but on the mountain, like I, I couldn't and I didn't, and I was so glad. Um, so it was a really nice respite from just the everyday chaos or just being, too connected that, that I think we all are kind of guilty of these days. And so that was, that was like a really, there was no FOMO. I was so happy to be there. Um, I think the only FOMO was like, not FOMO, but the only thing I missed out on was like a hot shower and a warm bed. Oh, I get that. You said the nights were the worst thing. Mm, yeah. Tell me about terrible. those nights. Oh boy. So like the days, they were tough, you know, like they were physically demanding, but I feel like I trained for it. So I was, I was okay. And we were all in great spirits. I had an awesome team. Um, I had a great guide. Uh, so like we just vibed really well and like the days were just absolutely incredible. And you're in the Himalayas and you see like beauty that you've never seen anywhere else in the world. The nights were just so hard because, um, it was just freezing cold. It was like, you know, <laughs> 20 degrees, 10 degrees, whatever it was. You're, you're staying in these, they call them tea houses, but they're like glorified cabins with no insulation, you know, really like just uncomfortable living quarters, no heating, And it was just like treacherously cold and uncomfortable. And then also like because of the altitude that affects your body. And after you get to a certain altitude, your body goes into survival mode. And it's really difficult to sleep because your body thinks that you're dying because you're, you're just above, you know, you're like 5,000 meters above or what is like 18,000 feet. Um, people, there's no agriculture that you're above the tree lines. Things don't live there. So like your body physiologically is like, I'm in survival mode. I cannot go to sleep 
because I need to make sure that like I have burning enough calories to, to live. And so it just, it was really challenging to sleep, to get a good night's sleep. And as you know, when you're doing strenuous activities during the day, you need that rest. Your body needs to recover. But because of the altitude, because of the, the cold, it was just really difficult. So just like the conditions were so uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm like a creature of like, I love sleep. I have, you know, my down comforter and my Egyptian cotton sheets. Like I love like curating a very good sleep experience. <laughs> and so um, also like I'm, I'm a very c- like clean person. And so like hygienically it was really terrible. Like I didn't shower for uh, five, six days. I didn't wash my hair for like two weeks. <laughs> Couldn't wash my hands. Like after a certain level, like after a certain uh, altitude, there's no hot water. And so you can't wash your hands because if you use cold water, you'll, you'll get sick. Um, you'll get like chest infections or the flu or you'll just have like a very adverse reaction if your body has like touches cold, cold water. Um, and so I just didn't wash my hands for two weeks. It was just, it was not like, it was not a comfortable situation, but it's what I classify as, I don't know if you've heard like the theory between like tier one type, type one fun, type two fun. No. So like type one fun is like in the moment, like something you enjoy doing, whether it's like dancing or playing an instrument or sewing or walking, whatever it is, like in the moment you're enjoying it. You're like, I love this thing. This is a lot of fun. This is enjoyable to me. And then after the fact, you look back on that experience and you're like, that was a ton of fun. Yes. That's, that's type one fun. Type two fun is how I classify at least mountaineering for me. Um, which is in the moment you're like, this is miserable. I hate it. Why am I doing this to myself? This is terrible. I'm in so much pain. And then after the fact, you look back and you're like, oh yeah, that was a good time. That was great. Mm. And so that's, to me, that's type two fun and that's mountaineering. Mm. And every time, I, every time I go on these expeditions, because I've done a few, um, in the moment, I'm just like miserable. I'm like, this sucks. Like, this is terrible. My body hurts. How, how, like, it hurts to breathe. It hurts to think. It hurts to sleep. It's impossible. But then after I look back and I just forget about all of that. And I'm just like, it was such an amazing experience. And then I keep doing it again and again and again. <laughs> I don't learn. You like to feel alive by doing things, as you said, with a higher chance of death. <laughs> um, oh, my parents aren't going to watch this. <laughs> but that's what it is. That's what you're saying. I, I don't know if it's like... You're an adrenaline junkie. No, I see. I, I am what I would call a calculated risk taker. Like, I like to take risks, but I'm calculated about those risks. You can be a calculated adrenaline junkie. I don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie. I think... Isn't I, adrenaline what's released when you're yeah. fighting for your life at night so you don't freeze to death <laughs> no, in a tea house? I didn't love that part, but yes. No, but that's what no, it no, is. You're right. But by the way, that's what your body is. Your body was probably more addicted to the fight or flight response that you felt at night, in hindsight, than it was what you experienced during the day. So the way that I look at it, at least like from my perspective, it's not about being an adrenaline junkie. For me, it's about a deep desire to challenge myself. And it's like, it's about setting a goal that I feel is like almost unattainable and then proving to myself that I can do it with hard work, with, you know, just dedication, with passion, whatever it might be. And so for me, I don't really think I'm chasing the high. I think I'm trying to push myself to, to prove to myself that I can achieve great things because I set my mind to it or my body to it, whatever it is. 
and this probably goes back to like my childhood of being the middle child and getting no attention. (laughs) But like, um, I just feel like I don't, I don't necessarily think I'm like, I need the adrenaline. Like I don't jump out. Well, I have jumped out of airplanes, but I don't do it on a regular basis. (laughs) But like I, you know, for me, it's more about like proven folks. (laughs) No, it's like, it's more about like setting a calculated risk. Okay. (laughs) Well, I won't bungee jump. I won't bungee jump to me. The, 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 the pros and cons of bungee jumping is just like, it doesn't, it's not, it's not for me. It's not worth it. But I don't know. For me, I think it's more of like a desire to achieve, like to have this achievement mindset, um, like Enneagrams. That's like my, my major Enneagram. I don't know if it's like number three or something, but like it's I'm one of those, but uh, yeah, I'm an achievement oriented person. And so um, I think that's why I became an entrepreneur is because like I had this need to achieve something, but I had this need to achieve something that like I controlled and that I could build. And so I think, you know, these types of activities like mountaineering or, or hiking or whatever it might be, um, I think a lot of it has to do with just wanting to set a goal beyond like what normal people do uh, or like out, out, of, out of the ordinary and like achieve the extraordinary based on, you know, putting, putting in the work to do it. What are some of those things that you achieved in solitude that move the needle for your time up on the mountain that, that you never talked to anybody about? I think uh, it goes back to kind of what I touched upon earlier, which is just living in the moment and being present. That's really, really hard for me. Um, you know, whenever I travel, like I, I, I distinctly remember, it's funny because I was in Nepal, ironically enough. I remember when I was in Nepal 10 years ago, I was doing like a trip around Southeast Asia and I'm in Nepal doing this, this hike. It's like a few day, a few day long hike. And I'm sitting on the mountain, seeing the most beautiful, you know, the Himalayas. Uh, And all I'm thinking about is like, I can't wait to get to Thailand next. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in Thailand, I was like sitting on the beaches of Thailand and I'm like, I can't wait to get to Vietnam next. Mm -hmm. And like, I just, I, you know, it's really difficult for me or even like at work, you know, like I'm like, I can't wait to get that next promotion or I can't wait to, hire that next person or I can't wait to, you know, achieve that next goal or whatever it is, close the next contract. And like, for me, it's really, really difficult to just be present and be happy and like live in the present, not be happy. I can be happy. I'm a very, very happy person, but like it, to, to just sit in the present, like I'm always thinking about the future. And I think I mask like my ex-husband, he used to say like, oh, you, you know, like you're always looking for the future. You can never be happy with the present. And I'm like, well, that's growth. That's what like a goal-oriented person is. That's what like a growth-minded person is. And I think I use that as like an excuse for, uh, or like a mask for, you know, always looking towards the future and just not sitting with the present. Um, but when I was on Everest, like I forced myself to just not think about the couch, you know, not think about the shower in, you know, in, in Kathmandu and just, be happy because I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. Like I will never be in this place ever again because I'm never going to do ever a space camp again. That was, <laughs> like, it, was too t- it was tough to do, you do it once. But, um, but I just, it was, it was really difficult for me to just to like be present and like live in the moment and appreciate the moment for what it was without thinking of what comes next or without thinking about the next day. It was just about putting one foot in front of the other that day and that was for me. Uh, and I was trying to be really intentional. I think that's like the best lesson I took from the mountain is just, you can do that. You just have to be very intentional about it. So now that you're back here, what will you do to step out of the future and into the present here? Uh, do any of those things include, for conversation's sake, taking a step back in the past? Um, in order to get to the present, 
to distract yourself from thinking about the future? Like, what does that look like now that you're not forced to appreciate the overwhelming beauty of the Himalayas? You know, I find myself, and it's funny because like this wasn't an intentional result of, of being on Everest, but I found myself since coming back, if I'm like walking in the city and I'm like having a good day, I, I like stop and I smile and like, today's a good day. Or like, I have a, like, I'm, I'm happy right now. And like, I, I kind of, I articulate that. Like sometimes I even say it out loud. Like I was reading, I don't know, I was reading some article and they were saying like, eat, like what you say kind of, you can manifest, you know, obviously like we all believe in the power, or some of us believe in the power of manifestation, but um, every day I start off now with today's going to be a great day. And that forces me to just focus on today. Not tomorrow is going to be a great day. It's today is going to be a great day. And mm. I, every morning when I wake up, I say that. And then I have a, like a, a piece of paper next to my bed. And I write one thing that I'm grateful for today. Mm. And um, it's been a really interesting practice. And I think it's changed me in a little bit. Like I feel like I've, I appreciate things a little more. Like I you know, walking through the city, it's so easy to be like, oh, there's too many people around or, oh, it's cold or, and like, I hate the cold too. So like, it's easy for me to be miserable in the cold, but like, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many things that you could just like, I have too much work to do or this or that, or, you know, like I'm fighting with this, but whatever it might be. Like, I just find myself now just being more happy uh, in the moment and, and then articulating that to myself where I'm just like, I'm happy or I'll like outwardly smile. Like the other day I was like walking to Union Square and I was just like, I'm happy right now. Like there's no reason for me to be happy. I just am like, I'm enjoying the moment. And like, for me that it was always like getting from A to B. It was never like just enjoying the moment. And so like, I've, I've learned to verbalize that to myself and just be more mindful about that on a day-to-day basis. And that's been, it's been great. I didn't expect that to be, I didn't expect to have an outcome like that. Um, And I think it's just, it's been a really good change. How long does it typically take for these positive benefits to wear off after a bucket list item is checked off for you? <laughs> it's, um, I don't necessarily think it's about wearing off. I think it's about, well, it's funny. Cause like when I was training for Everest, I, uh, I couldn't wait to be done with Everest so I could stop training for Everest. Like I was training so intensely that I was just like, I can't wait to the point where I don't have to train. Like when this is over, I don't have to, like I can just enjoy working out or I can just take a day off and I'll be fine. Um, Whereas as soon as I got back, I think that lasted like a week. And then I'm like, all right, what am I training for next? And my my trainer was like, you are not climbing any more mountains in 2023. Like I'm not allowing you to, to train for anything yet. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's like about like the feeling wearing off. I think it's, uh, you know, I said when I got back from Everest, I was like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to think about another mountain for weeks. Cause it was just such a hard expedition. And then I think it lasted like maybe five days. And I'm like, all right, what am I doing next? Kilimanjaro, <laughs> Aconcagua. See, mo- most people ask which fun number one can I do next? <laughs> you ask which fun number two can I do next? There's, There's something, something that needs to me. unpack there. <laughs> It's true. But but I mean, it, look, I'm um, you're preaching to the choir first of all, so there's no judgment, and you're not alone on this couch. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 by the way, you know that that is, you know, that is a symptom of having a Type A personality. Oh yeah, I'm Type A. Yeah. Of course. Uh, as I look at my friend Erin Stafford's book, The Type A Trap. I'm gonna have to read that. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> she just graduated as uh, graduated. She retired as uh, 
she was CMO of the largest healthcare staffing company in the country. And her whole thing is that us type A people, we burn ourselves out pretty darn quick. And what if we could just shift five mindsets within us? And one of them is slow down to speed up. Mm. So the slow down that you do every day, today's going to be a great day. Gratitude is the slow down in order to hopefully have you perform more optimally mm. than you were performing pre-Everest. Yeah. Have you found any shift in like your cognitive capacity or your ability to produce or innovate or be creative or be collaborative or be empathetic or anything? Or is it just, I mean, you were already great before. Did you just go back to homeostasis? <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things I tell my team, because uh, I work with a, a team of high performers, uh, you know, at a, at a very prestigious company. And so, you know, there's this level of excellence that we all, you know, are, are obviously is instilled in all of us. And one of the things I say to my team is uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So don't burn yourself out. So I'm very intentional about making sure that my team feels comfortable. I don't necessarily practice what I preach sometimes, but um, you know, one of the things that I had instilled in my team most recently after Everest, and I don't know if this was a byproduct of Everest or just it was just something that came to me, is scheduling time for creativity. <laughs> and I, I feel like that sounds like an oxymoron, um, uh, but it's... You know, it, it, at work, you know, you get so caught up in the day-to-day and you get so caught up in meetings and emails and reports and this and that. You know, like there's so much that has to be done that like it's like business as usual. I find, especially working in innovation, where you need to like foster creativity. Like you need to think about the impossible in order to achieve it. And that's only going to happen if you step outside of your comfort zone. That's only going to happen if you have that blank space or you create that blank canvas. And so one of the things that I have asked my team since, since coming back from Everest was everybody block off at least one hour on your calendar, more if you can. And per it, day, per hour, per, per week? week. Okay. Per week. Gotcha. One hour on your calendar per week where it's just your creative time. So if you want to stand in front of a whiteboard and do nothing for an hour, that's great. If you want to read articles or newsletters, also great. If you want to write, fine. But whatever it is, you cannot be business as usual. You cannot take calls. You cannot write emails. Like you just need to be intentional about creating the time for your brain to be able to think of something new and different and exciting. Um, And so I think that might be, you know, a result of just being present and like being inspired by being, you know, on the mountain and just, you know, forcing myself to to live in the moment. And so I think, you know, being able to kind of instill that culture in my team and try and get them to be more intentional about their creativity and how they're um, using their time to make sure that like they feel uh, inspired, um, I think might be a, might be a byproduct of, of being on the mountain. My question to you about energy and time, you spent an awful amount of time in preparation Time on the mountain, three to four weeks. Time decompressing Mm. in order to gain an elevated energy to walk into the world with. Mm. Tell me about that ratio, that exchange of having, like most people will, most people will spend money to gain back time. Some people spend time to gain back money. I'll I'll pay someone to go sit in a line at Whole Foods or 
I'll go spend eight hours of my day to send, save $10. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. spent an inordinate amount of time yeah. for a boost in energy. Tell me about how that ratio plays out in your life. I mean, I see it as an investment personally. Like, I mean, any, yeah, I mean, like yeah. time is yeah, our yeah. most valuable resource. Uh, it's finite. Um, I see that as an incredible <laughs> return on my investment because, yes, I spent, let's say, four months, five months training, and then I spent, you know, like a month in, in, in Nepal. And so it's like h- half of a year, basically, that I, I, I spent on this one goal, which sounds incredible, like, which sounds like a lot of time, like, especially thinking of the opportunity cost of that, like of all the, you know, the events I passed up so I can be training or so like all the dates I turned down so I could be training or, uh, you know, the work opportunities I turned down because I needed to train. Um, so yes, it looks like it was, it might've put me at a deficit, but the truth of the matter is that experience will be with me for the rest of my life. So it's like, yeah, six months seems like a long time, but when you look at a person's life, you know, how many years is that? 80, 90, 100 years. Um, these memories are going to last forever. Like I will never forget Everest. I will never forget what, what it made me feel, what I did. Um, and so for me, it's like the, the time I invested is, is definitely a worthy, a worthy one. Oh yeah. No, yeah. I, I didn't look at it as a net negative. I looked at it as a net positive. Oh yeah, absolutely. You invested six months of your life for a high energy experience that far outweighed the near-term boost in oxytocin yeah. or dopamine that a date, yeah. a friend's birthday party, yeah. which will happen again next year, yeah. um, a bat mitzvah might yeah. be. Yeah, exactly. And um, But that, that ability to, as my friend Dory Clark says, play the long game, yeah. invest for a long time for a high-energy return in a very short-term driven impulsive, impatient world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's very hard to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, maybe that's one of the benefits of looking towards the future all the time, <laughs> you know, like knowing that something is a worthy investment because you have this long-term <coughs> idea about it. Um, also like the monetary investment. Like I didn't even, like I'm, I'm very fortunate that I was able to, but it's not cheap. I mean, I probably invested maybe $10,000 to go to Everest between all the gear, all the training, the flights, the, the, the trek itself. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it was, it's, it was, it, it was, it cost a lot, uh, you know, in, in time and in, and in money and, and, in you know, opportunity costs as well. But, you know, I think that might be the benefit of like being someone who's always looking at the future is like understanding like that was a worthy investment. And I knew, and even if I, I think, even if I didn't accomplish it, like, because was it like 60%? I think, no, 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 sorry. 40%, I think, of people who attempt to get to Everest Base Camp don't achieve that. Because there's just so many variables and factors between like the weather and altitude sickness. And altitude sickness is no joke. Like you can die from altitude sickness. You can get hay, haze, whatever it might be. Um, and chest infections and like every time we were, so there's only one way up and one way down. And so we're constantly, you know, we're going towards base camp, but as we're going towards base camp, we're passing plenty of like tons of people who are on their way down, um, because it's only one route. And every single group we'd pass had a story about how, um, someone on their team had to get airlifted off the mountain, uh, or had to like, you know, to get the, stop the trek. Um, and 
you know, that was like always in the back of our minds is like, it could be one of us, you know, like mm. it could be, and, and there's nothing you can do. Like there's a saying in Nepal, it's uh, altitude sickness doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter how fit you are. It doesn't matter how well-trained you are. It doesn't, there's nothing you can do to fight altitude sickness. Either get it or you don't. Um, and, and, you know, every night we were taking our pulse ox, like when you go to the hospital and they, they put like the pulse ox meter on your finger, um, we were taking our heart rates and there, there are, there's our times where like, if your pulse ox drops a certain level, it's, it's automatic, um, airlift off the mountain. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I think all of this to say is like, there was a good enough chance that I wasn't going to get to base camp or that someone from my team wasn't going to get to base camp and accomplish that goal. But I think, even if that happened, and I'm so grateful that it didn't, like I'm very grateful that we all made it, but like even if I didn't make it, I, I still would have seen it as a worthy investment because I invested in myself. In the end of the day, okay, I got fitter, you know, like I got into working out, you know, like I got into, you know, like I, I put my health first. I haven't done that in a really long time, you know, if, you know, if it was, a, if it was a, an option between like going to see a friend for dinner or going to the gym, I was obviously going to choose to see my friend. Um, so it, it it forced me to prioritize things that I don't think I would have. And so even if I wasn't able to accomplish the goal, um, I think there was a lot of benefits that came from it. What's, um, what's one thing about Everest that you've told no one yet? (laughs) This is kind of deep, but, uh, I felt nothing when I got to base camp. I just, I felt nothing. Like I didn't, I, it was so anticlimactic. I, I thought, I mean, maybe because I built it up so much in my head or maybe because I was just so tired uh, and drained, but I thought it was going to be this like, and that's kind of why I was saying it's about the journey, not the destination. Because when I got to the destination, it, it did nothing for me. Like I didn't feel different. And I thought I would be changed. You know, like I thought I was going to have this like climactic life affirming kind of epiphany moment or the sense of like extreme accomplishment and achievement. I got to, I got to the base camp and and that was like the, there's a rock that says like Everest base camp and you take a photo there. I didn't want to take a photo. I was like, I'm so tired. Like I just, you have to climb up on the rock and I'm like, no, I have to take a photo. Like I have to, you know, I have to commemorate this, but I, uh, I kind of felt like a uh, a fraud in a sense because I just I did this huge thing that I've been training for I you know, dedicated half of a year to it and when I got there I just didn't really feel anything. Is that the first time that you've felt or not felt that way? It happened once before uh, when I actually my the the mountaineering experience prior to Everest I summited Pico de Orizaba. Uh, which has an even lower uh, <coughs> success rate. I think it's like 50 or 40% of people summit. So like 60%. Like most people who try Pico de Orizaba don't, don't make it to the top. And it was, to me, it was more challenging than Everest, but it was only over a couple of days versus a couple of weeks. Um, but Pico de Orizaba, it's the, the tallest mountain in Mexico. Um, it's actually higher than Everest in, in altitude. Uh, it's like 5,700 meters, so like close to 19,000 feet. Um, and it's crazy. Like you're you have all this different terrain, but like the, the final four hours, you are literally, cli- and, you, and you start like at midnight and then you get, the whole point is like you get to the summit to see the sunrise. And so the last four hours of the trek, you're um, attached, you have a harness, you have a rope, you have crampons, you know, like um, shoes with ice picks in them. And it's very technical. Like it's, you can't mess it up if you mess up. And, and it's at a 45 degree angle and you're on a glacier. So it's hardcore. Um, so you're, 
you know, attached to your, to your team. So there's three people to a rope. Um, and there's a, a proceed, like there's a, a, a very technical procedure that you have to follow. So you have to like kick your crampon in, kick your crampon, your another, kick your foot in, kick your other foot in, and then take your ice pick and then you pull yourself up. So you just have to keep on doing this motion. You can't stop. Um, and you're at a 45 degree angle. And if you slip, you fall down the, <laughs> you fall down the mountain, however many meters or feet you might fall. Look, that's why you're attached to, to somebody else with a rope so then they can kind of stop if, if that happens. Um, and it was just, it's, it was the hardest part. It was probably the most physically demanding thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, but it was kind of meditative in a sense, because like you have to focus on the technique. You can't think of, like, I couldn't think about the pain. I couldn't look around and imagine the, like see the beauty. Like all I had to think was like put one foot in front of the other, literally one foot, one foot, ax, one foot, one foot, ax, one foot. Like it's just the whole time. And so it was kind of like this like disassociative state uh, or like this meditative state. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Like, it was like this, you know, like masochistic enjoyment. But um, I got to the summit and like all you're looking at is the top and like it's just so far away. It's just always, it doesn't matter how far you go. It's so far away. And so finally I got to the summit after like two days of like the most physically demanding thing I've ever done in my entire life. And the fact that like only 40% of people summit and like everybody that I had spoken to prior didn't make it. Um, I got to the top and I felt nothing again. <laughs> like I just, I thought I would just be elated. Um, but I just, I, it was anticlimactic again. Um, and I think that's kind of when I started to learn like, Hey, it's about, it's about the journey. It's about like pushing yourself and being able to do it, not checking it off your list. Mm. And so I think that reframed my like achievement mindset. And um, one thing that was interesting is before, so I went with a group of Mexicans because um, you know, it's, it's, it's in Mexico. And so, you know, we're, we're all having lunch before we get to the mountain. We're like midway past, like we're th- we get picked up in Mexico city really early. And then we go to some far off village, you know, like maybe four or five, six hours away. And that's where you start the trek. And so in between Mexico city and the village, we stop off for lunch and we're like all chatting in Spanish around the table and I said, like, in one word, why are you doing this? Like, why, like, why are you choosing to summit Pico de Orizaba, like one of the toughest mountains to do? It's the third tallest in, in North America. Um, and so we went around the table and like everybody gave their, their one word answer. Um, some people were like, oh, beauty. And uh, it was just like, there's so many other, like health. Uh, there was just like a lot of like good reasons. And my reason was achievement. Like, I just want to achieve it. Um, and then when I did and I felt nothing, it, it was kind of like an eye-opening experience where it was just like, you have, to ha- you have to want to do this for other reasons than just checking it off your list. And so like that's, that was, and then having that same experience in Everest, but now knowing I still want to, I want to do Kilimanjaro or I want to do Aconcagua. Like I'm a, <laughs> kind of addicted to, to that. But I, I also like it because it's, it's validating that it's not about the destination, which is the top of the mountain. It's about the journey to get there and like the journey to get you prepared to get there, which I really enjoy, which I never thought I would. So that's a little different for me. If you could give credit or thanks to one person on your Everest trip that you don't give enough thanks to or you haven't thought to thank yet, who would that be? I'm going to go with my personal trainer, Ed. Uh, and it's funny cause we have this incredible, hilarious relationship. It's like love, hate, you know, like we always just mess with each other. Like we're always ranking and roasting each other, 
but he, when he, when I started training with him, I hadn't worked out in years because I had a, a really bad back injury from a, a sandboarding incident. Um, and I hadn't worked out in years. Like I was so out of shape, so, so out of shape. Um, and when I met him and I told him what the goal was, like, he didn't say like, you're not going to accomplish it. And also like, I, I met him two months before Picadori Zaba. So I had like eight weeks to get into shape to do this mountain that was way harder and more technical than, than Everest. Um, and he, he got me ready forever. I mean, he got me ready for Orizaba. I, I did Orizaba thanks to him. And I was a pain the entire time. <laughs> like I complained every second I had the opportunity to complain. Told him I couldn't do it. Um, there were so many times where he pushed me beyond like what I thought I could actually do. Um, and times where I wanted to quit, but like he wouldn't let me. And um, I'm going to send, I'm going to share this with him because I never compliment him because we have the, like, we have the best and worst relationship. It's amazing. You know, I, I love that man so much, but he, he took a chance on me. Like he knew that there was this like really crazy, possibly unattainable goal given like my fitness and my physicality at the time. And he got me there. And I think it wasn't even just, it wasn't even just being physically fit and ready to, to summit the mountains or both of them, Everest and Orizaba but it was just the confidence that I had because I had that physical training. And so both times, you know, for Everest and, and Orizaba, when I was on the mountain and it was strenuous, it was hard. It was physically, it's probably the most, two most physically demanding things I've ever done in my entire life. But I was good physically. Like it was more mental that like I had the issues or like the challenges. Um, and I was good because of him. And like, he's just, he just trained me so well. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for him and his friendship. He's just like the, the, the most amazing dude I know. Um, but yeah, so Ed, here's looking at you, but I'll, 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 uh, deny this if, if you ever bring it up ever again. <laughs> Cheers to you, Ed. Here's to you, Ed. <laughs> Any last words in closing? No, I mean, thank you. Like this is, this has been great. You're, you're an incredible podcast host and I'm glad I get to like immortalize the the experience and you know it'll live in my brain forever but now now it lives online so thank you so much <laughs> I know we didn't include you audience in much of this conversation <laughs> this was just really a private conversation that you happen to listen in on but you um I hope you learned a thing or two right we we learned from Lisa that um in order to be a big a big time thinker in a short term world you got to slow down and tell yourself the day is going to be great practice a little gratitude have a moment of rest pause and reflection in order to go out with a growth mindset and achieve some pretty good things lisa's come back and implemented some creativity time and she's implemented that on her team um the innovation team of one of the world's largest companies and they're doing quite well with it. Uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, some of the best things that have happened in her life have been not intentional results. Um, and there's a forthcoming book that Lisa's going to be sharing your way about the intersection of corporate innovation and international exploration or mountaineering. Um, one of the two. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this strange episode of <laughs> gratitude through hard times. Uh, if, if you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to click that subscribe button and join our journey. Go back, as I mentioned earlier about 
different podcast episode archives, I think you're going to find people just like Lisa who can teach us some great things about life. For all you loyal listeners, we thank you for your support. Again, the favorite parts of my week are your questions, comments, thoughts, concerns of today's episode. All of Lisa's information is in the show notes below. Um, But I can't wait to see you in the next podcast episode. Hope you're having a phenomenal day on earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore and we'll see you next episode.